This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. So, so I'm sort of here talking about Dan Siegel to help me, with your help too, to think about this guy and what he's saying and how we should relate to what he's saying. Because he's not a Christian, but he says a lot of wonderful things, and a lot of it based on neuroscience. He's a very influential um, psychiatrist and therapist in the USA. He loves to weave together thoughts from many disciplines and has written numerous books and articles. He's done a lot of high-quality research in the neuroscience field. Uh, on how we can change our brains and our families and our culture. Some of the books, a few titles, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, uh, Parenting from the Inside Out, Mindsight, The Yes Brain Child. So you can see he's interested in, in families, in children, in parenting, and in, in adults too, and how we, we function. It's just a, a mind-blowing number of books and papers that he has he's written. He's a delightful individual. If you listen to him on YouTube, you'll, you'll pick some of that up. He's a family man, lives in California. He's deeply sensitive to people's inner worlds, but highly trained scientifically. Um, many of you, some of you may have encountered his work in, on parenting, and I would recommend his his uh, videos and his books. I'm going to look at one of his children's books a little later on. Um, so what we'll do tonight is look at his basic ideas um, and finding significant places of agreement and disagreement from a Christian perspective. So let's dive into this. The first book that I ever read of his, probably I read it about I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, a book called Mindsight. And the, the title intrigued me. What is this guy talking about? What's he mean by Mindsight? And he's basically saying that there are lessons we can learn from contemporary neuroscience. Um, and we need some theoretical understanding of the brain um, and in order to be able to understand the internal workings of the mind. So if you can learn to understand the brain's role in regulating your emotions, and you can recognize and you can then recognize and manage your emotions in a way that allows you to gain control over those psychological states where you're often overwhelmed by your emotions, by your feelings. And you, you gain some control of them rather than being completely swamped by them, being ruled by them. So this is, this is the theme, the major lesson. And then he goes on to, to talk about the daily disciplines uh, 
and the habits of the heart or the patterns of the brain that you need to develop in order to train your brain. So we used to think until, what, 30 years ago, that once the brain was damaged, or our brains anyway, you couldn't change much. And now we've come to learn from neuroscience that we can actually rehabilitate people who have had strokes quite significantly. We can rehabilitate people with brain damage, not completely, but up to a point. We've learned that the brain is much more open to regeneration and new growth and repair than we ever thought. So there's, there's an optimism in this, in the area of psychiatry. Um, and, and of course, psychiatry goes through waves up and down of optimism and pessimism. Over the, over the centuries, it's done that. With the, in, the uh, advent of medication for psychiatric illness, there was a huge optimism. And then we began to realize the limitations of medication, and then we got pessimistic again. Uh, and then we got into cognitive behavioral therapy, and we all became very optimistic about that, about psychotherapy and counseling. And then people began to realize the limitations. Well, this is another, another bandwagon, you might say, that everyone's jumping on, which has, there's some reason to jump on it, because there is... There are, there are good uh, scientific reasons why we, we might be able to help ourselves. So one of the things that Mindsight talks about is the importance of differentiating your, your uh, mind, the state of your mind, when you say, I am sad, or I am depressed, or I am anxious. There's a, there's a self-identification statement in that which is not very healthy because it, it, it's in a way saying, that's all I am, that's me, that's the core of my identity, rather than saying, learning to say, I feel sad or I feel depressed, I feel anxious. That's disidentifying yourself, the core of yourself from the emotion and it gives you a little more um, control, choice in how you respond to it. So with more self-awareness, he says, we are able to uncover hidden emotions, feelings, and thoughts and identify areas of ourselves that we want to change. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that he, was, he, had, he, he loves going across disciplines, and he was quite influenced by E.O. Wilson, who you may have heard of. He's written lots of books. He's an American biologist naturalist, ecologist. Uh, some of the titles of his books, The Meaning of Human Existence, Our Planets Fight for Life, The Diversity of Life, or On Human Nature. So a very intelligent man. And this, um, uh, this book, this illustration here, The New Synthesis, um, is sort of bringing together his work on sociobiology. So you would call him nowadays, I think, a, a sociobiologist. And so what he emphasizes is finding common ground across different disciplines, recognizing that we need to think systematically to be able to transform the systems that we live in, that's families, 
communities, churches, businesses, um, whatever, uh, to, to make a difference in the problems of violence and war and racism and climate change. So Wilson was interested in this. Um, Dan Siegel has big thoughts. He's sort of focusing on individuals, but he has big thoughts about the effect that this might have on the world and our relationship with the world. So each of these men are saying, you have to, somehow we have to find ways to help individuals, families, or groups to have kindness, compassion, collaboration, and creativity. Those are pretty good goals, aren't they? And we, we would say as Christians, yes, this is a wonderful thing. We want to be able to do this too. This is what we as Christians would like to be able to do. So bringing together across anthropology, sociology, biology, quantum physics, psychology, psychotherapy, we can work together to come up with some solutions that may help to solve the problems of our planet. Now there are a few ways in which they use words, he uses certain words that are, um, <clears throat> that I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about. He talks a lot about energy and in this context um, he's saying that there are many, obviously there are many forms of energy. There's sound, there's light, there's, there's energy in our bodies to keep us going. And there are microstates of energy, meaning this is the area of quantum physics, the invisible quantum realm of molecules and particles. And he talks about those as verbs, so these are things that are always moving, in motion. You can't see them very well, as opposed to the nouns, which are when the microstate, the, the molecules, take form as physical objects, like bodies, people, uh, chairs, tables. Um, so energy, he would say, is movement from possibility to actuality, okay? So, and, and you might think about it in terms of an emotion. You begin to feel angry with someone, irritated, and it may turn into you actually grabbing them and shaking them or hitting them or doing something physical. So the, the possibility has turned into an actuality and the conversion of energy from thought to, to motion. So he's saying the brain is a complex system that needs organization. And, and where is this system of energy? The energy flow occurs within the body, including the brain, as well as in the sharing of energy and information between an individual and others and the environment in which the person lives. So there's energy flow between people. There's energy flow between us and the trees in the forest. We react to each other. We influence each other in some ways. So, and then when you, so when you are caught up with energy of negative emotions, say shame or uh, rage, 
then this interferes with your creativity, doesn't it? It stops you reaching out to people in creative ways or being able to create beautiful things. Um, whereas reconciliation and forgiveness frees the energy to be used for good things. So how can we find a way to help the brain to be more integrated? Because if there's a lot of negative energy, that tends towards disintegration. A lot of positive en energy tends towards integration. And those words I have used for years in relation to a biblical view of life that what, what I've always, the way I've always thought about it, the fall, in other words, that the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the creation produced disintegration at every level. Within ourselves, with the world around us, our relationship with other people, there was immediately jealousy and murder in Cain and Abel's relationship. And, and the fruits of the spring, spirit and Christ's coming bring about integration. And one day we will be completely integrated. The whole world will be restored. So these ideas of integration and disintegration are, are, are common ground. And I like to think about the areas where we find agreement with non-Christians. I would talk about it from a Christian perspective. That is common grace wisdom. So it's what God has revealed to us through nuclear physics, through medicine, um, through just the simple anatomy, uh, through literature, through philosophy, things where Christians and non-Christians see the world in the same way. And then we'll see that there are some differences because where you start from makes a big difference. So back to the basic principles here. Um, so the idea in, in Siegel's mind is how can we transform distress into good stress? The negative energy of distress. So the mind tends towards, when it's not integrated, not functioning well, it tends towards chaos or rigidity. That is, those are the impaired integration. So ideally, you want to be rowing down this river of integration and avoiding the shoals on either side, the rocks on either side of chaos or rigidity. Now think in your life, when you are highly anxious, what does your thinking become? It becomes often very rigid and controlling. That would be one way doesn't it? And maybe more perfectionist if you have a, a tendency that way anyway. Uh, or you fall apart into a sort of chaotic mess and you can't make decisions, you can't do anything, you're just a, a bundle of, of not going anywhere very quickly. Or if you think of, uh, in terms of if you're very angry, you can become very rigid and demanding of other people or you can act out in a very destructive way and create chaos and mayhem all around you. So the system itself tends in these ways. And we'll see more how that 
that, that so these are sort of states of mind and you can think of those states of mind in children and in adults or in more extreme forms of mental illness if you think of mania in bipolar disorder that is a, a sort of chaotic existence uh, where someone is talking very fast, is laughing, joking, uh, running around, not sleeping. Uh, life has become chaotic. And on the other side, you might think of obsessive-compulsive disorder as trying to control everything in the world to, to stave off the anxiety. So research on individuals with a range of psychiatric disorders has revealed impaired integration of the different parts of the brain. And um, Siegel loves acronyms. He has lots and lots of them. And here's one of them, FACES. So the ideal in calming ourselves is to move towards FACES. Flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Nice words, aren't they? And that's what, it would be great to be that, wouldn't it? To be flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. And you know some people like that, who always seem to be maybe even-tempered. They never get, fall into the rocks of chaos or rigidity on the other side. They flow gently down the stream. Um, so this is what we're aiming towards, towards integration and harmony. Now... The next question he comes up with is, what is mind? So what is mind? What, how would you describe mind? Here I'm going to pause for a minute and let you... Can anyone come up with an answer? What, 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 would, you, what would you say our mind is? That's not an easy question. Self-consciousness yes. of um, the ability to observe self-consciousness. The ability to observe self-consciousness. That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Others? Yes. Say that again. Decision-making and thinking. Oh, thinking and then decision-making. Yep. Yep. Any other thoughts? Yes. The inner life is the mind. Thinking, feeling, responding. Okay. Initiating. Okay. Good. No, these are these are great, great thoughts, um, and uh, coming from your minds. <laughs> so, the the I looked up a definition, a dictionary definition, and this is what it says. Um, the element of a person that enables them to be aware of the world and their experience, to think and to feel the faculty of consciousness and thought. So aware of the world, thinking, feeling, consciousness and thought. And that's certainly what we experience, isn't it? Um, and many people today tend to think that the mind equals the brain or the brain equals the mind, um, and that they're sort of equivalent to each other. And Dan Siegel feels that that's much too narrow a definition. So he comes up with this definition. Mind 
is an emergent, self-organizing, fully embodied, fully relational process whose task is to regulate energy and information. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? A bit hard to get your head around. It's taken me many years to get my head around this. So uh, I think if you just emphasize the separate phrases for a minute, so it's an emergent. It's not a static thing. It's something that is emerging from within us all the time, a state of mind, which is self-organizing. So most of the time our brains work reasonably well together to keep us organized. Sometimes they go off into the chaotic and the, uh, the rigid, rigid uh, rocks, but it's fully embodied, so it's, it's in us, but it's not, as we'll see, it's not just in our skulls, in our brains. It's a whole body is involved. And it's a fully relational process, and this is the bit that takes it away from a, a very individual notion it's a relational process whose task is to regulate energy and information which is occurring in relationship. So the mind not only involves an individual, but it involves what's going on between us. Okay? That's quite a, an expansive, big view of mind, isn't it? Isn't it? So he says, um, all of this neurochemical, neurobiochemical stuff flowing around between the brain and the body, that's what it is. This energy between people. 80, think that 80 to 90% of human communication is nonverbal. It's, it's sound, it's voice, it's light, it's what you see, you feel it. It's happening and we are paying attention to it. For example, you wonder if you mean anything to people. Your very presence in a room, because of your energy, makes a difference to the whole room. Now, we're not very aware of that at all. But maybe we need to become more aware of that. So, and, and, and I believe as a Christian, obviously, God has made us as people who regulate energy in the room. The fall means that we are partially cut off from ourselves and how we regulate energy in the room. There's been a dysregulation because of the fall and because of sin. And we, we humans are always in the business of making sense of what we sense. We give meaning to the energy, the tone of voice, the look in a face. You interpret it and you create a story around it. It's, a, it's an energy that is converted into a story and a relationship. So we are storytellers and we make meaning of all the emerging energy so we become stories. And we want our minds and our stories to move towards flourishing, towards integration. So telling your story becomes a very significant part of psychotherapy, as you know, if you sit down with a therapist. Uh, telling your story becomes a very significant part of deep relationships. You're sharing that mind between you. So... Mind, 
we would say then is more than brain. And our question then becomes, how can we create mental activities that promote integration? How do we strengthen the mind? So promote integration, strengthen the mind. So one of the ways that we do this, Siegel says, and a lot of contemporary mindfulness teaching is, goes along the same route as this, it's learning to monitor the energy and information flow in your body and around you between people. And then when you, when you can see, feel it and see it and, and notice it, then you can modify your response to it. But if you're just reacting, then you just react like a, a reflex. It's an automatic thing. It's not so measured and controlled. So your superpower, says Siegel, is to learn how to focus your attention. And we are not very good at that. Our attention is being taken all the time by our phones, by the immediate in, in the situation around us. I tend to be a doer rather than a beer, so I have to work hard to stop and pay attention to things that are going on around me. Um, so just choosing, when I was a medical student, a friend took me bird watching. I'd never listened or watched birds before, and uh, it was an absolutely wonderful time. He opened my eyes to nature and to bird song and birds, and I have never stopped hearing them and noticing them and listening. I don't have to work at noticing birds now, but I do have to work at noticing certain other things in life. But you can learn to notice. That's, that's my point in that. So if you monitor your sensations, your perceptions, your and you reflect on them, it allows you to then modify, choose to modify your reaction. So in this, you learn certain mind-strengthening skills, and then for some people who are in states of great chaos and rigidity, they may need medication to get to the point where they can use the mind-strengthening skills. So it's, it's not just all about your own self-discipline, sometimes we are very broken and we need external help from other people and from medication. So we, we ask, is, is my emotion regulating me or am I learning to regulate my emotion? And I need other people to what the neuroscientists call co-regulate. And we'll talk about how that begins in someone's life a little later on. Uh, we're taught not to share emotions or to even feel them. And certainly I was as a young person. My parents didn't show much. They didn't talk about emotions. I didn't see them showing many emotions. So it was a sort of rather flat. I mean, they were very loving and caring people. But in terms of emotions, it was, I learned to be pretty Stiff upper lip, typical British, you know. That's changing, thankfully. Um, and we learn from our parents, friends, community, uh, how to, to be different. So just take 
just a, a few examples on this. Anxiety. So in, in this world that we're in, we feel anxiety. Um, and it tends to overwhelm us. We try and uh, anticipate, predict, in order to be able to control. But sometimes we don't manage to do that. We are often overwhelmed. And this is often a subconscious process, isn't it? You're not quite sure what you're anxious about. Or sometimes you're very aware of what you're anxious about. But our subjective feelings um, and perception shape our response to that anxiety. So, and that, of course, is affected by your temperament. Some people are just more anxious by temperament from birth. It's a genetic inheritance they have. Uh, by your early life story and what your family was like and whether they were very anxious or unpredictable or chaotic or rigid people. And then by current events. All of those things will shape um, your response. So in, in order to what these folk call tame or frame... Um, your emotions, these, this chaotic world within you, you need to name them. You need to understand your story and how you got to be the way you are. Um, <clears throat> and that then allows you more choice. So you're learning to, uh, to regulate your emotions in your brain. Now Dan Siegel, just a couple of months ago, came out with this book, for children, he has this one's for three to six-year-olds, um, and he's got one for teens. And you've seen from what I said about him, he's he's been interested in working with kids for a long time. And this is a, just a good example of the very. This is distilling down all that he's saying to its simplest, which is maybe what we need, because we don't need a lot of the complex neuroscience. So let me just give you a little flavor there. It says, um, adventure stories to help young kids navigate everyday challenges and grow in caring and kind ways. It's a great goal, isn't it? Um, so here is, uh, <laughs> I'll give you a, I'll read a little bit of this. Like oh, This is little girl here. Like almost every preschooler, my days have good and bad. My outer world experience I process in my head. My inner world is full of all my thoughts and feelings too. And with sensations in my body, I make sense of what to do. Now, he's, he's suggesting that this isn't something that obviously you just read to a child like a storybook. This is good for parents because from the story, it enables them to talk about emotions with their children. Sometimes I choose the right choice, sometimes I make mistakes, but with my parents' guidance, big learnings I will make. <laughs> so, it's time to go on an adventure with all our tools in hand. Our now map is the key to travel, the seas and all the land. And then he gives the tools that you need to go with that map. We have a button we can press to pause the moment fast, so that's one tool. And then we have our flashlight beam on, on our feelings we will cast. You can look within. So you can pause 
look within. Before we journey onward and go about our day, we use a special monitor to check if we are okay. Green, orange, red. Okay. Have you got that? Yes, you have got that up there. Yes. So then, then he goes into uh, where shall we go on this adventure? And he has three storylines. And I'll just give you a glimpse of one of them. Um, and all of them are related to different problems that this child might have in their day. So this morning felt quite draining. Getting ready is not my thing. My mum told me to put on clothes. I wanted to play and sing. <laughs> my mum just didn't get I wanted more control. I knew my friend was coming later, but that's not now, you know. <laughs> I found myself inside a jungle, a jungle in my mind. I battled through the mud and rainfall. I fought through snaky vines. My <coughs> mum seemed like a predator, a jaguar she'd become. She stalked and growled and followed me. My heart beat like a drum. I looked down at my tool belt to see what I could use. I thought, I'll pause the moment. My button I will choose. Because when time stops in its tracks, it may be just a wink. I'm pausing what I'm doing so I have a chance to think. From there, I grabbed my flashlight to look inside my brain. I then could name all my feelings and put them in a frame. My body was my focus next lit brightly by the beam. My heart was fast, my skin was hot. I felt that I could scream. I checked my OK monitor. I didn't feel OK. Now almost in the red zone, it said that I felt rage. <laughs> my mum then spoke. My daydream stopped. Real life was clear to see. Her voice was calm, her touch was soft. She knew how to help me. Let's think about your feelings. I'm guessing you feel mad. To get all dressed means stopping play. You want to play so bad. Transitions can be challenging. They may not seem like fun, but we can make it easy as a team. We'll get it done. Well, whoosh and zip and butt and well, what do you know? You're dressed. And just like that, you're now all set to go. You get, you get a little feeling of it. So there are three more adventures, well, two more adventures. Um, one is in a desert, one is a pirate ship. Uh, and the whole idea is just to, as you can get a feel of it, to help kids to pause, to look within, and then be able to change their reactions, to talk about, to talk about it with parents. So there are many parents who've never done this before. They've never thought, that you could actually talk to children about and name their emotions, naming and taming that idea. So it's learning emotional regulation. So the next part of all this is that, that um, it's, it's we, the neuroscientists, the, neuro, the therapists who are working in this field feel that it's very helpful to understand your brain. The more you know about it, the more it helps you to know what's going on inside, that you can regulate it better. So I'm just going to take you very quickly through some images and ideas here. Um, 
So this is the front of the brain, okay, looking at the brain this way. And Dan Siegel came up with this idea, the very simple, what's called hand model of the brain. How many of you have seen this before? Quite a lot of you. It's become quite a common thing, quite a common way for therapists to explain to their clients, their patients, what your brain is like. So if you think of, um, hold, of your hand, uh, holding your hand up like this, so this, if you wrap it over, is this bit of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. And it's going around the limbic regions, which is the thumb here, this central bit. And you'll see what the importance of this when you realize how close the prefrontal region is to the limbic area. Because the, the association between those is incredibly important. And then you have your, so then you have your brain stem, and then you have your spinal cord going down your back. Okay? So here's the sort of brain stem and spinal cord. And the brain stem, the limbic brain stem going up and connecting with the limbic regions. <clears throat> so we have amazing brains and amazing bodies. And the more you can experience the integration of, the, of brain and body, and body and your whole being, the better it is. We tend to have a, a somewhat negative view of the body as the source of disease, the source of temptation and sin. And trauma takes up residence in the body. Some of you may have read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is very popular now which is going into the effect of trauma and how it's stored in the body. Um, but let me, let me go on through this a little bit more. So here is, this is this sort of looking at it from the side, the frontal cortex and prefrontal here. And this is the, the brain stem and the midbrain coming up in the middle there. So the thalamus... <clears throat> actually starting from the bottom, the spinal cord, and then the brain stem is to do with very sort of primitive states, we might say, of hunger and sex and sleep and response to danger and states of arousal. The thalamus coordinates and connects all this. And the brain is, as I said, is not just in the head. You have a huge vagus nerve, not only the spinal cord, down your back, but you have a huge vagus nerve going right through the center of you, which is connecting all of these different org internal organs. And you have the, what's called the sympathetic nervous system on the right, which is the bit that is the, the uh, bit that gets stirs up when you're in danger. So your pupils get dilated, you have accelerated heartbeat, you have more more air to your lungs, your stomach stops um, working quite so much to give all the blood to the place that will be needed for fight or flight. The parasympathetic on the left here is that which, in a sense, calms you. So it slows your heartbeat. Um, your, it stimulates uh, digestion, stimulates the liver, um, and things like that. So, and this, the parasympathetic, just simple, the simple exercise that all therapists use nowadays 
and many you see it in many movies when someone when they're anxious that people say breathe just breathe well deep slow breathing stimulates the parasympathetic and calms the sympathetic side so it's a very practical way of helping people to to calm when they are traumatized when they're ready to fight or flight or freeze as um, so often we get into in dangerous situations. <clears throat> and if you think of the way we, we talk about um, the heart, um, you, you talk about heart, that was a heartfelt um, situation or I was heartbroken and we're referring to emotions, to feelings. Or our intestines, that I had a real gut feeling or a gut reaction. We feel it down here. I couldn't stomach those lies. Or that was absolutely breathtaking. So we're, we're talking about the whole body being involved in reactions to things. So the brain is, the mind is bigger than just the physical brain up here. And then these, just going a little bit in glimpse in the lick regions, uh, this is the, the center of your brain. So this bit under the prefrontal here, this is the frontal lobe here, just like that. And you have this extraordinary mechanism in here of the amygdala and the, the hypothalamus, this bit in here, which regulates hormonal reactions. And then the amygdala, which many people uh, call Amy, just as a sort of friendly thing. Amy is your smoke detector, your alarm. And Amy will react if you are in danger, causing you fear, anxiety, and sending messages to the sympathetic nervous system. You better get ready. So it's, it's a very important part of your body, and it's linked to the hippocampus, this bit that goes around here. I'll come back to that in a minute. So... Um, many, uh, I think it, I, Dan Siegel, I think, originated this idea of the window of tolerance. And this is when you are faced with a dangerous situation, you, either, you, you can either tolerate it, so you, you, you remain calm, or you become very aroused by it and very angry or afraid, uh, or you go into a sort of paralysis, you shut down, you freeze, or you faint. Those are the extremes of it. This is a little more elaborate version of it. So in the window of tolerance in the middle there, this is where you feel just right, where you are best able to cope with the punches that life throws at you. You're calm, but not tired, alert, but not anxious. And then if you move up a little bit into the dysregulation, this is where you begin to feel agitated. You may feel anxious, revved up or angry. You don't feel uh, out of control, but you also don't feel comfortable. And then the top is this is when you feel extremely anxious, angry or out of control. You might want to fight or run away. And then at the bottom, it's sort of the, the opposite of that. Um, you might feel like shutting down. You feel a bit spacey. 
you lose track of time, you're sluggish. You're not out of control, but you're uncomfortable here. But then in hypoarousal, you're extremely zoned out, you're numb. Both emotionally and physically, time can go missing, and it might feel like you're completely frozen. It's not something you choose, your body just takes over. Now, I suspect that many of you may have been in situations where you have been traumatized, and you've had either one or the other reaction. In therapy, you can help someone to widen, on the right there, their window of tolerance. You can help them to come back from just terror to a place where they can tolerate difficult circumstances uh, more easily. But stress and trauma can shrink your window of tolerance. So this is a very useful concept, an idea, in, in helping people to think about how they react to very traumatic situations. Just back to the, the limbic system for a minute. So the, the hippocampus, this blue bit here in the middle of the brain on both sides, um, this links several parts of the brain, but especially remembering and integrating emotions, thoughts, facts, reflections. It encodes and stores memory, explicit memories. And it is the place that is vulnerable to aging and stress and lack of sleep. So that is one of the, one of the things that tends to if you're under stress for a whole lot of your life, you may have memory problems later in life. It may be because it has affected the, the hippocampus. So, now another area in all this is that sometimes this bit, the prefrontal, gets disconnected from the limbic. So when you have a lot of stress, so your child is screaming and you're late for work and everything is going wrong in your household, you flip your lid. So this is sort of literally a flipping of lid. And you lose it. And everything gets out of This is when you lose the connection between the frontal lobe and the inner workings, the more primitive aspects of your brain. So the, the idea is to work against that and therapy and uh, these exercises that therapists can give you work towards regulation of the body, attunement to the self, emotional balance, the ability to be flexible, to soothe fear, empathy, morality, intuition. These are all the, the things that we're working for and towards. So the frontal lobe is the prefrontal cortex, that purple bit there, is all about these things. So it's a pretty complex part of the brain that is incredibly important that it's functioning well because it gives you all of these, these things. So 30% of our brains is prefrontal. In a chimp, it's about 11%, a dog, 7%, a cat, 3.5%. We won't get into fights about dogs and cats. Here. <laughs> and then there is the connection between the two halves of the brain, which is going obviously across this way and coming this way 
which is also a very pretty complex part of the brain and a very important part to be, have, to be working effectively. We, we often caricature the right and the left halves of the brain, the left half being the logical, linear, um, and rational part, the right being the emotional and the, the artistic uh, and, and so on. And, and there is some truth that they are different but they're not, they're not cut off from each other and they should be learning to work together. Um, some people have, because they've been encouraged to, have developed the logical, rational, linear part of their brain to the exclusion of their right brains. And some have developed their emotional brains to the exclusion of the logical. So... <clears throat> We're, I'm moving in, in different. I'm moving out of the brain structure now. <clears throat> this is our latest grandson. I couldn't resist this. <clears throat> just a couple of weeks ago, Jasper was born, just locally here, and he comes out of the womb. He's so beautifully sweet and sleeps and eats. And um, but this is where attachment begins, isn't it? So he comes out, he loses that sense of oneness and wholeness in the womb, of being one with mother. But he's still very much one with mother if she is a good mother, my daughter, and looks into his eyes and holds him and feeds him until he is, some months later, able to begin to separate. But he, he establishes there, in those first months, a sense of secure attachment, hopefully. A child who has had a, a mother who's had a difficult pregnancy, maybe with fighting with her spouse or partner, and then has a difficult birth and a difficult feeding relationship and anxiety and trauma, the attachment there will be much less secure. So he, co he comes into a dangerous world and attachment patterns will shape his reactions. Um, so here, here's mum <laughs> gazing into his eyes and these first um, patterns. And Siegel talks about these four things that a child needs. To be seen, safe, soothed and secure. Those are great essays, aren't they, to remember? Seen, safe, soothed, and secure. And he talks also about the need for presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. And these are the qualities of good friends. Not only good parents, but good friends, and good counselors, and good therapists. Um, to be able to be a, a presence where you are attuned to the other person's mind and brain and body and there's a sort of resonance between your limbic region and their limbic region uh, and you you develop trust now this little man has some <laughs> bro brothers who uh, I'm not this one was a little angry that he came into the world um, but he's settling with it now but I think he's going to get some lessons where he may not feel quite so safe and secure <laughs> uh, and soothed. Um, but they love him and that, hopefully that will all go well. 
Um, <clears throat> so I realize that I'm, I'm pushing you, your limits and our limits here with time. Um, I just want to say a little bit, you, have you heard about, you've probably heard about attachment patterns, have you? No? In relationships? There's a lot in the general, a lot of this stuff is now coming out down into the ordinary day-to-day -day literature. But about 65% of people live in a pretty, have grown up in a fairly pretty secure, safe, seen, soothed, secure environment. Good enough. It's not, it doesn't have to be perfect. But there are different forms of non-secure attachment. One is called avoidant or detached. You don't need people. You tend to dismiss them. Uh, you're afraid of an abandonment, so you may keep yourself away from people. Another one is, is anxious, preoccupied, where you ruminate about the leftover themes from childhood, the insecurities and the anxieties. So you are anxious, preoccupied, find it difficult to have relationships. And then the disorganized and fearful would be uh, children, people who have grown up uh, in families that are pretty chaotic, maybe a drug-addicted, alcohol-addicted parent, um, and that their existence is much more fragmented. They're, they find it hard to tell a, um, co a cohesive story of their early years. There's a sort of disconnection between body and emotions. So these, these are the other, uh, out of the uh, 65, the 35% divided up there. <clears throat> so, but you can do things, all of these folk can do things to move from non-secure to secure. You can begin to make sense of life and to create movement to security, what we call earned, secure attachments. And the newborn uses the adult's brain, mum's brain, adult brain, to help him or her integrate. To help. So this is what this little book is about. Not only the newborn, but the two-year-old, the three-year-old, learn from mum's brain, who hopefully is more integrated, how to manage their strong emotions and to feel safe and secure in that, in that environment. <clears throat> so I'm just going to skip through this actually. Um, so learning these mindfulness techniques <clears throat> can strengthen the hub of the mind so that internal sensations such as body signals or waves of emotion can be experienced with more clarity and calmness. This was the goal we set out with at the beginning. Neurons, as Donald Hebsett said, that fire together, wire together. So you can retrain neurons. Where attention goes, neurons fire. Where neurons fire, they can rewire. We become what we pay attention to. So you can stimulate neuronal activity and growth by what you pay attention to. It's like training your brain when you learn a musical instrument. You have to train 
hours and hours in one direction, practicing something again and again to build the neuronal connections. The same happens with emotional regulation. So, and this is where I wish, or maybe in the discussion we can, we can come back to this, but this for Dan Siegel becomes a sort of focus of a way of helping people, an exercise which takes about 40 minutes, which he suggests you do every day, if you can. Um, and it's sort of like a mindfulness exercise where you learn to pay attention to different things in your body. So you learn, you may first of all, in a simple meditation technique, just be, close your eyes, sit still and listen to your, notice your breath. Your breath going in and out of your mouth or nose, into your lungs, and what you are experiencing in your body. So this is an exercise of focused noticing. Um, and then you, you, uh, um, you may, with your eyes closed, well, with, you know, with your eyes closed, you may focus on sounds that you're hearing in the room, and then tastes that you may be feeling, smells that you may be experiencing, and open your eyes, and what are you seeing? What can you touch? Feeling the, the chair under your, your rear end. Um, and then you would do a scan of your body, say we call it the interior of the body, and you would notice any physical pains or muscle tensions, what's happening to your heart, your lungs, your gut. And then perhaps you would go into emotions, what are you feeling? This is all takes you know, quite a long time, I'm going very fast here. Your thoughts, your beliefs, and then he suggests a way of going into the hub of this. So it's like, it's sort of like you become the conductor of the orchestra and you direct the spoke at each of these points around the circle. Um, and in the hub, you send attention to each segment of the ring. And when you in the final part of it, you go to this, heart, this interconnection bit, to nature, community, and relationship. And you, you become aware of what your relationship is with nature, with your community. And then he has a, a blessing that he has people say together, which goes like this, may all beings be happy. May all beings be as healthy as they can. May all beings be safe, flourish, and thrive. May I be happy and live with meaning, connection, equanimity, and a playful, grateful, and joyful heart. May I be as healthy as I can, live with a body that gives energy and flexibility, strength and stability. May I be safe and protected from all sorts of inner and outer harm. And may I flourish and thrive and live with the ease of well-being. And then he has, so that's very much about me. And then he has the people send one more wish out to the universe for an integrated sense of being. 
Mais moi, and he coins this word me and we, moi, may moi be happy and live with meaning, connection, and equanimity, and a playful, grateful, and joyful heart. May we moi be as healthy as we can, and so on. So he goes through this as a sort of blessing to the universe, asking that we may flourish together. And he believes that practicing this every day, and he has many people who tell him that in the hub, their experience of being in the hub is an experience of pure awareness, of connection, of timelessness, of joy, of love, of gratitude, of compassion, all the things that people describe in a mystical experience. So he's, he's sort of creating uh, an environment in which people are feeling this and feeling very loving towards each other. Um, this is, he, he then goes quite a lot, he takes a fairly large amount of time talking about quantum physics. Um, and, uh, and he recognizes that there are strong parallels with this and contemplative spirituality. So his, his, his study, his quantum physics study, it, quantum physics is a study of matter and energy at its most fundamental level. So he is saying that we are all one, but we have different emanations of that energy in our individual beings. Um, and he likens it to uh, the Pando Populous Forest, which you may have heard about in the States, which is um, a, a vast root of aspen trees, which is 106 acres and lots of individual aspen trees coming out of this one root. So this, he's talking here about, uh, no, we're not coming back yet. Um, the, the oneness that we all feel together and yet also the diversity that we all feel. No. And this, this area, and this is where I'm, I'm getting there to, to a close here, of the theme that he has, there is in the universe both unity and diversity. There is macro and micro. Okay, there's the invisible world um, of quantum physics, of molecules and so on, and then there's the visible, the, the, the visible world of us and bodies, and we're all relating to each other in this way. And he says part of the problem in our culture is that we have developed this illusion of the separate self. We think we are individuals, so we live in a very individualistic culture. And that, that is, he believes, is disabling. That to come back to a view where we are not just individuals, but we're part of a greater whole, it's not us versus them, it's us and them. It's mui. And we have diversity and unity. We have me, we, I, and mui. We have ourselves in relation to others and nature. And in this, what is happening here, Evan? Try unplugging here. Yeah, I, I 
A black goat and a live pigeon? Okay. Anyway. So he, he, he believes that um, as we develop simple exercises like breathing exercises, getting good sleep, and sleep is a very important part for integration of the brain, it going on or walks, as he calls them, in other words, going out into nature and, and be experiencing nature, encountering beauty, exercising our bodies, uh, developing the discipline of gratitude and compassion and hope. All of these things will help us to be more integrated. And, and then he says, developing curiosity and open awareness and kindness and love um, and recognize we are human beings rather than human doings. So there are a lot, a lot of common ground here between the virtues that Christians would, uh, would, would emphasize and encourage people to develop. But one of the, one of the problems is that at heart, what, what intrigued me about him, and I wish I had these final diagrams here, what intrigued me about him was that at the core, um, he is suggesting, he, I think his view is a sort of humanism veering towards Buddhism. So that there are lots of good things, and there's an emphasis on us all being one, but he doesn't go as far as true Buddhists would, who would say that our individuality doesn't exist, that we are all one. So he's not a monist saying everything is just all one. He's acknowledging unity and diversity, oneness and togetherness and individual identity, which is what Christians would emphasize. But it, for him, it doesn't come from an understanding of a, that at the heart of everything, there is a personal universe. We are made by a personal God. So all he can do is encourage people to go back to the wheel of awareness and sort of sink into that hub and become more aware of their own internal being. So it's, it's sort of looking within and looking for salvation within, which is what most humanists do anyway. It's not looking to a God outside oneself. Um, but it's also not... I thought for many years that he was going to become a Buddhist, but he hasn't gone that far. He's still a neuroscience who believes in some sort of objective reality and a difference between individuals. So let me draw to a close here. I'm sorry I've gone on so long. I had no idea how long this was going to be. It's the first time I've ever done it. And, um, but thank you for hearing me. And if you have questions, uh, if you're utterly confused, um, some are going to sleep, that's fine. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Maybe we can just move into question time. I'm just going to... Yeah, let's just get started because there's so many things to talk about. So, yeah. Um, thank you for your talk. I loved it. It was very, very yeah, thought-provoking and just very encouraging in terms of 
impressive. My question is just uh, more curiosity than anything. Does Dan Siegel have an idea of um, perfection within the integration? Like, does he believe that you can achieve perfection within your lifetime of being a fully integrated person? Just a, more of a curiosity question than anything. Yeah, so do I need to repeat the questions? Yes? No? <laughs> yeah. So does Dan Siegel have a, an idea of perfection, of being completely integrated in our lifetime? I have not read that anywhere. Um, I, don't, I don't think he would say that it's possible. I think he would say we're all flawed and somewhat disinterested. And um, he don't, I don't think he has any idea of a sort of utopian heaven with everyone integrated together. And the, the great Mui, forest of Mui, <laughs> trees uh, dancing together, but he would like to see us moving towards that, towards peace, towards harmony, towards ending wars, towards climate control. It's all there in, in if we all did this, you know, then he, he thinks it would go a long way towards healing the world. So I guess that's my question. Um, who's, sorry, who's speaking here? Oh, right. oh yeah, sorry. Uh, I don't know if he does he say it explicitly or not, but I guess would his beliefs like universal good would just be integration? Is that what he would say? Is that's the that's the universal good? I think that's true. Yes, I, and out of people being integrated, they will naturally do what is right and good, and they will be compassionate and caring and. <coughs> Um, does he also believe in good beyond, like there's a, there's a good distinct from just integration? Well, there's no, there's no sort of personal good beyond that, beyond ourselves. There's no, no God outside of ourselves. But the more we individually and as people, as families, as communities, are integrated with each other, then good will emerge from that, I think. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Yes? But how can you be integrated with the world when everybody's been tainted with, with sin and, and without having that dealt with Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, a, I'm a very different person now from what I was before I came to Christ because of his work in me um, and the ability to change myself would have been the best cosmetic I think mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than deep and real uh, mm -hmm. and the scripture talks about people being Christ becoming a new creation Yeah, and that, that's there's a real spiritual truth in that. Yeah, that's a great, great question too. The question is about, uh, about uh, how can we be integrated, how can we be whole when we are all sinful and broken and it's only through the work of Christ really that, that he, we can be new creatures, is that right? Um, and I think, yes, fundamentally I think that's true. Um, but I would say that I think that there are areas of life where, where without Christ, 
we can grow and change and become more mature as people. Um, so this is part of what I would call common grace. The rain falls on the, the just and the unjust. It's not the work of the Spirit within us. It's not because we've repented of sin and put our hope in God, but it's because we have believed for some reason that we need to be kinder to other people or more grateful in life. We've learned some hard lessons maybe from the way we've lived and we've sort of turned our back on those and said, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going to help people in my community. And that may not be because I've become a Christian. It may be because, just because it happens to people. So, um, so it's a sort of, what we'd call it, a common grace growth in, in virtue but it doesn't solve the problem of the human heart, of rebellion against God. It's still a very self-sufficient, self-salvation attitude to, to life, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts or questions? Yes, please. Just, just coming off the back of that last thought, I think I've seen friends who really put an emphasis on that um, self-awareness uh, on its own, uh, becoming quite, moving into a place of rigidity, to use this language, um, when life outside of them and outside of their control comes at you, as life does. Mm -hmm. And so I guess some of that limitation that we all, so, you know, I think that's so much helpful in here, that that's so helpful, but maybe some of that limitation being when life is relentlessly really hard mm. and not from you and so it's that self-situating but you know what if you have an abusive husband or you have mm -hmm. you know some of the mm -hmm. it's a, a recurrent situation where actually you're not going to be able to uh, almost re situate yourself balance correctly just by being self-aware so I guess there's that that slight limitation there in in the brokenness of the world but just yeah mm. I was so struck by how helpful lots of those things are for mm. what you can do. Um, yeah. yeah. That was a really good yeah. talk. Thanks so much. Thanks, Liz. I'm sorry I can't repeat that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this picked it up a bit. <clears throat> yeah. There's one of the big differences that there's no political call here. There's no <laughs> Magnificat in Dan Siegel's books. Where do, sorry, I haven't got the connection between the Magnificat and the political call. So, at the start of the Gospels, Mary's saying, you will lay down the mighty from where they are and oh. raise up the lowly. Like, what I worry about is, uh, I'm being a pragmatist here, and I'm worried about, do you get people reaching, perhaps based on data and numbers, rather than on contemplation, to then want to go and do political good. Yeah, he, he's... I think, he, I think he would say that the more, again, as I said earlier, the more integrated you are, the more you will want to do things for the good of community. He do, he, you're right, he doesn't talk overtly about political activity or social... He doesn't use the word sort of social acti activism... But I think the inevitable fruit of what he's saying is that you would be socially active. 
you would try and, but you'd, you'd probably do it by trying to change other people's minds towards being more integrated as people. So it becomes the sort of the gospel of um, the wheel of awareness. <laughs> that is, you know, if everyone was practicing the wheel of awareness, then we, the world would be a better place and we'd be more socially active, I suppose, and perhaps politically active. But he doesn't, I, I've not come across anywhere where he, he actively talks about that. That's a good question. Yeah, Jim. Thanks, Richard. Very, yeah, very interesting to hear uh, his ideas. And um, is it, it seems like that, in a way, the the healing is quite a technique-based mm -hmm. healing, as opposed to say, if you're in psychodynamic psychotherapy, being more relational healing in terms of your relationship with the therapist and the work you do together. Would that be would that be true? Is it in a sense is the role of the therapist more teaching you the, the techniques of the, the sort of mindfulness, the hub, you know, the wheel of is that right or is that not necessary? So the question is 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 it more technique oriented rather than focusing on the relationship with the therapist and things that might come out of that. I I think he would say both and so for growth and for integration, we all need other human beings, whether it's a friend or a therapist, who are well attuned to you and for whom they are safe people who are trustworthy, who can help you to tell your story well and to understand it and how it's affected you and shaped you. And then these other things that, oh, it's gone. Oh, magic! I just look. Um, these other things are the more more sort of techniquey things, I suppose you could say, just to tell someone to get good sleep or to exercise. Um, yeah, they they are, but they ideally they're in the context of deep relationships that together you work on these things. Yeah. Sorry, Jim. Okay, so, so in a sense, he's quite eclectic, isn't he? Because he's kind of taken things from attachment theory yeah. and then maybe mindfulness yeah. sort of put them together in a, yeah, a he, neurobiology. He says he hadn't heard of mindfulness until he was about, till he'd written his book Mindsight <laughs> and someone said to him, this is mindfulness. And he said, oh yeah, there is a relationship between that. So he's, as a neuroscientist, he was sort of developing these ideas and they got bigger and bigger in his mind. Um, and then, the, yeah, and they, they've met a lot of other, what a lot of other people are doing. But he is somewhat eclectic, yes. Yeah. Sorry, you had a hand up at the back. Thank you so much. I thought that was an utterly astounding talk. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Mindfulness and all those things that actually helped me deepen my faith 
because I used to go to church um, regularly and was very sincere and very committed. But at, at that point, you know, we've got little children and everything else going on. And um, by the time you go to say, let's pray, um, have a moment of quiet, and other go through, what's for lunch? Did I do this? Yes. And then it's like, and now, dear God, blah, blah, blah. And it was really through the quiet moments in a yoga class and sitting that it gave us space for the depth that I, I feel he's touching on. Mm -hmm. And that in, in many ways, they're so compatible. Mm -hmm. The one enhances the other really yeah. so much. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a great point, and um, I think that we in Protestant Christianity for many years have focused a lot on doctrine and theology, which is all good and gives us a framework, an understanding for our belief, um, but have not focused so much on the depth of relationship with Christ and how we enter into that and into the more contemplative spirituality which some folk have developed much more deeply um, and, it, the, and one, one of the difficult things is that quite a lot of the contemplative spirituality does verge on Eastern mysticism so there is, like with Dan Siegel, I thought he was going to be a Buddhist in the end, that he would say, in a sense, all is one. But he's maintained this oneness and unity, the, those two things, but he's not connected it to a personal God. And one of the... Th the here's an example of the, the Buddhist <coughs> mindfulness. This is where some meditative techniques and contemplative spirituality ends up, if you push it down to the end of the road, is that there is no individual I to be found. Um, and there's ultimately no self because we are one with everything. And this is the, uh, the monism, the all is one, whereas the Christian view is that of a Trinitarian God, who is three in one. So there's even diversity within the unity of the Godhead. Um, so I, I, that's gone a long way from what you were saying. Uh, but, but I think it, we're sort of, we want to avoid the dangers of being very hyper-doctrinal in the sense of being rigid. And we also want to avoid the danger of walking into a different view of God, where everything is one. Um, and some of the contemplative spirituality moves, does move in that direction. But thank you for your, your comment, very personal comment. Yeah. Um, this is a bit left field, but you were talking about left and right hemispheres. Yes. So uh, I went to an amazing talk at the RSM by a, an obstetric psychiatrist. What's, the, what's that, if I may ask? The psychiatrist is a person who treats the mum whilst <laughs> okay. he's pregnant. Yes. And what she showed was the greatest determinant of whether that child is going to have anxiety 
is whether the mum has pregnancy-associated anxiety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you actually showed slides after the, the birth of the baby. Mm -hmm. And my thinking is we actually need to be thinking a step further back. In the womb. We, and I practiced for 30 years and obviously realized that the way women were in their pregnancy affected the baby, but I, I, never, I never referred anyone to an obstetric psychiatrist. In fact, there weren't any obstetric psychiatrists. But the one thing that really matters if that child, if the mum has had preg uh, pregnancy associated anxiety after the birth is touch from the mum. Yeah. And I just think we underestimate yeah. that bond yeah. between mum and baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and the, so, you sorry. Know, my, part of my question is, you know, should we actually be, I mean, the health service is broken, but should we be actually uh, uh, devoting resources more to families and the pregnancy and looking at it not just from blood pressure and urine and, <laughs> and what's going on with the physical characteristics, but looking at the whole picture of what's going on in mm -hmm. that pregnancy. Yeah, that's a great, great comment and question. Thank you. And, and I mean, I think there has been a lot of, a lot more emphasis on the, the, the bonding relationship and the necessity of that between mothers and babies and between mothers and children. Certainly since I grew up, you know, in the days when children were, went into hospital, my sister went into hospital about the age of four or five or something to have her appendix removed and mother didn't go with her. She was all alone. So we, from those early days of learning about what, how deeply psychologically damaging that is for children, we've come a long way. Um, and I think we do recognize, and certainly midwives recognize that, the importance of that relationship. But I think we could do more in the whole area of parenting with children, you know, on this whole area of teaching parents how to do what this suggests. But thank you. Yeah. Other thoughts, comments? Yes, Evan, sorry. So it's just a follow-up question from Zoom on attachment theory, um, perhaps while we're on that subject. Um, I'll just read the question. Uh, when I trained as a when I trained as a teacher, Dalby had just written on attachment theory. I never came across it again in my whole 30 years plus in education. Then suddenly I found Christian counselors writing and talking about attachment. Why do you think this is? Have Christians just realized we are storied people influenced by our past? Now, if you caught that at all, but wondering why there's a sudden emergence of attachment theory amongst Christian, Christian therapists. Um, well, I think, I mean, I, there's, although the secular therapists were talking about it before, uh, there's been an equal growth in emphasis on it up to now. And then this whole idea of attachment, that the research that's been done on attachment uh, has only emerged in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think Christians... You know, we, we tend to be a little wary of secular 
psychiatry, psychology ideas, and maybe we're a little more comfortable with them, in, with this understanding of common grace and common grace wisdom, uh, maybe we're, be we're better at taking them in now and seeing their value than we were, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And as I said right at the very beginning, there's a whole school of Christian counseling that says all you need is the Bible. So you wouldn't, they wouldn't look at attachment theory um, in, and use that language. Um, they would obviously acknowledge the importance of a mother and child's relationship, but they wouldn't think we can learn anything from the secular psychological uh, research. But that's, that's changed too. Mm. David, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I think we all need uh, study and advice, don't we, and uh, technique. It just occurred to me that um, it would be useful to think of using Christ as your psychiatrist or your analyst or your counsellor. How far could you go with that? Yeah, the question is about thinking of Christ as our therapist, analyst, counsellor. And I think, obviously, he is the ultimate therapist and counsellor. It is from him that we learn how to live and how to flourish the most. Um, and we should, in a sense, you know, if we, if we spend... He, he, Dan Siegel is suggesting we spend you know, 30 to 40 minutes on the wheel of awareness of meditating every day. There are many Christians who have the idea we should spend time every morning in a time with the Lord, reading the scriptures, meditating, praying, being still before him. And that, in a way, that is the, the equivalent. I think Christians could, could use some of the meditative ideas a, a bit more um, but it is basically listening to the voice of God through Christ through the Holy Spirit and we need that every day um, that is the framework in which I think about and evaluate Dan Siegel from a biblical Christ-centered uh, worldview yeah Yes, sir. Does he ever relate to this whole issue of the speed of life and where things are today where we feel we've been overloaded with information through media mm. to the whole pressure? Many people will have the time to spend because they're too busy trying to make a living just trying to get through life or they may be under persecution or something like that. Mm. that. That sort of whole life, this is very theoretical in the world of Yeah, that's a, very, that's a very good point, very good practical point, because it feels somewhat like many therapy theories that they are made for an affluent, comfortable people who aren't struggling a whole lot with poverty and war and famine and all of these things. Um, and certainly, you know, we have to meet our practical physical needs first before you can spend a lot of time going within. Um, so 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could say it would be interesting to hear him talking about responding to your question. Um, I think it's valuable for us all to take time to be still. In especially, he would say, you know, we are all too busy, we're all too frenetic, and we need to learn some of these techniques in order to be more attuned to ourselves and to others around us. I wanted to tell you, actually, about someone else, which I just remembered that I had on this. Um, if I can find it here, right at the end. Um, here's, actually, here's the, yeah, here's the last slide. So this is, this is where I should have ended with this slide, where Dan Siegel is, is saying there are two realities, which Christians, we would say, there's a visible and an invisible. He's talking about the quantum physics reality of the molecular, un invisible world. We are saying there's that, but there's more than that in a spiritual reality and a relationship with God and angels and demons. <clears throat> and his ultimate story and salvation, mode of salvation from the mess we're in, feels like it's about the daily practice of the wheel of awareness and being in community and being in nature and seeking to be kind and compassionate and integrated. There is a Christian who uh, worked, trained under Dan Signal by the name of Kurt Thompson, who that happens to be a good friend of mine. He's a psychiatrist in Virginia, and I'm going to be in a conference with him later this year. Um, but I would strongly recommend you explore, if you're interested in Dan Siegel, he has taken this, a lot of his ideas, and has moved them on much more explicitly and specifically so you can read, with warmth and humor, Kurt weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian vision of what it means to be human, enabling others to tell their stories more truly, truly realize their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued and connected, and live into their destiny to create beauty and goodness in the world. So these are his four books. This is the one that's just being published now. Uh, and they are very overtly and explicitly Christian, but uh, using some of Dan Siegel's ideas and taking them much further into the area of beauty and truth. Uh, so he has a blog. Um, sorry, he has a podcast. Sorry, I couldn't think of the word. Um, yes, the Being Known podcast. Thank you. Being Known, which he does with a friend, and it's really, I think it's really good. It takes quite a lot of time, effort, but it, it's, uh, it's fun, and it's, it's really excellent. So that's another resource, if you're interested in these things, um, to, to explore. <clears throat> And then if you want to see the sort of books and, and uh, papers that he's written, uh, it's this sort of list, <laughs> which is mind-boggling. 
<laughs> Any other thoughts, questions, comments? <clears throat> Maybe we should finish. I don't know if you're going to hang around here at the front for a minute. I can hang around for a few minutes. Yeah. Question, but sure. Yeah, maybe we should finish. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really You're welcome. Thank you.